all the homicide evidence was just scattered in tattered boxes up in the second floor of this warehouse. Did you find commonalities? What sort of things were found at the scenes? What kind of description did the victims give? This kind of behavior would bleed into or leak out of his normal everyday life. I may be able to help with that. This winter, all your favorite detectives are streaming on BritBox. Don't miss exclusive new seasons of Death in Paradise. There must be something we've missed. Vera. It wasn't an accident, was it, love? Father Brown. What did he look like? And more. Once you start investigating, you won't want to stop. We're done when I say we're done. Stream your favorite detectives only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes. I'm a state, well, former state and federal prosecutor. It is great to be here with you, Jim. Thank you very much. (laughs) And Francie and I are so excited to be here live at CrimeCon with a very special guest. Hi, I'm Paul Holes, recently retired. <laughs> why, did I, why did I know that was gonna happen? Live at CrimeCon. Jim, did you notice though that we didn't get that kind of- <laughs> <laughs> That's just no respect, sorry. But Paul, you were saying recently? Recently retired cold case investigator out of Contra Costa County DA's office. Well, that's great. Thanks, Paul, for coming. Francie and I, as I said, are very excited to have you here. So today, we're going to talk to you about one of your best cases or worst cases. And (laughs) some people find that funny, apparently. I think they might have an idea of what we're talking about, Jim. Just we'll see. We'll see. He gets to pick. Um, So could you tell us where in your career you were when this case came to you? I had just graduated from the police academy and I was located in Martinez, California. Really? Yes. And so, how old were you at that point? I would have been 26 years old. Okay, and what was going on in your life at that time? Oh, at that point in time, I was just a, a newbie law enforcement officer. I was assigned to the Forensic Services Division, doing a lot of crime scene investigation and forensic scientist type work. Okay, so how did this particular case that you have in mind come to you. What was going on? So at that point in my life, I was just a sponge, reading everything I possibly could. And the sheriff's crime lab had this amazing library. And I'd go in there and look at all these old textbooks with all these old cases. And I noticed this old dusty file cabinet just tucked away that nobody went near. And I decided, I need to see what's in there. And I didn't even know if I had any permission to open it up. but. So what did you find in there? So when I opened up these old drawers, there were these manila folders. And inside each manila folder was a case file. And how many case files were there? In this particular set, we had about 13 different cases. Okay. So tell us a little about what you learned when you started reading these case files. So as I started looking into these case files, I saw a series. And you had an individual 
an offender that was going into houses and he was attacking either single females or couples over the course of these attacks that were occurring in the East Bay, California, from Concord down mm. to San Jose. Interesting. It does sound a little familiar. So, Paul, you know, as a new police officer, what did you think when, I'm sure there were crime scene photos from these, or some kind of photos from these files. You were young, you were new, you probably hadn't seen anything like that before. Tell us how that impacted you to see that stuff. So in terms of the crime scene photos, I had spent so much of my time during college, instead of studying my textbooks that I should have been studying, I was looking at crime scene photos, I was looking at forensic pathology. So you textbooks. were a sick puppy. I <laughs> kind of, yeah. Wait, wait, that's, wait. that's probably a good to, way to I say that. I have to defend Paul because someone has to argue <laughs> against Jim, right? I have to defend Paul. I did something really similar when I first started. Okay, that's proof. (laughs) (laughs) Totally not, Paul, totally not. When I first started as an assistant DA, my very first job, my very first week, my boss, the DA, Gray Conger, in Columbus, Georgia, told me the best way to learn is to read case files. Find some files and read them. And I also found a dusty old file cabinet in the old library at the DA's office. And in that file cabinet were a bunch of manila folders, but it was only one case. It was the Columbus Stocking Strangler, who murdered eight women back in the uh, early 80s. And I did the exact same thing, except I think maybe unlike Paul, I was completely shocked and horrified. I pulled the first file open and there's dead women. It was horrendous. You sort of can't ever prepare for that. I think now, thanks to Jim and, and his TV show, I'm not going to talk about it. Criminal Minds, let's be honest. <laughs> Criminal Minds. I think people are less shocked at looking at crime scene photos now, but this was the 90s, and it was a very shocking thing because you didn't see dead bodies on TV like that, so it was really appalling. I mean, I'm interested in hearing that you were eager to learn from old cases. How did that, do you, do you think, how did that shape your career going forward? In taking a look at cold cases, you know, to kind of underscore, I had just finished reading this textbook called Sexual Homicide. By? That was by uh, Bob Ressler, John Douglas, and yeah. Ann Burgess mm-hmm. of the FBI's BAU. This is a seminal really, textbook. I think I've heard of those people. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was fascinated with serial predators. And so when I run across these series of cases, and even though I was young, uh, I thought, I need to look at this. Yeah, and by the way, Notice how he used the term serial predators when he was referring to that, not when he was referring to nice guy acquaintance offenders that a lot of people call child sex offenders. Unfortunately, they don't act and look like serial predators, but these people that he's talking about absolutely do. That's Jim trying to give me a hard time for calling people predators. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I I got you back last night, Jim. You did, and that's why I'm getting you back today. We'll see who has the last word. (laughs) <laughs> no doubt that's a hashtag so let's get Francie. back to Paul Holes please <laughs> retired detective hero whatever you know Superman right no come on so talk to us so once you read these files what was in your mind after you finished reading all these dusty old files that nobody gave a damn about well at that point in time I was in training to do DNA work and DNA technology was just coming into forensic laboratories, so I thought, well, let's see if I can find some evidence and see if it would help lead to identifying who this offender was. All right. 
And what did you do after that? And then I ended up scouring the property room looking for old evidence. And, you know, back in the 1990s, 19, yeah, mid-1990s, this property room was an old, derelict building. All the homicide evidence was just scattered in tattered boxes up in the second floor of this warehouse. And it is literally just going through that, trying to find anything related to these case files that I was looking at. And were they numbered and organized, or was it pretty random at that point? It was fairly random, but at least boxed, you know, but the seals, the heat inside the warehouse would get up to 120 degrees, and so the tape would start to peel off. And that's Rats had gotten to evidence. Yeah, and that's not good in terms of maintaining the integrity of DNA evidence, is it? Not at all. So did you have any success finding good DNA materials there? I found three sexual assault kits from three of the cases. Wait, in a hot, dusty warehouse, not in like a refrigerator? That's right. For how many years? At that point, it would have been for, what, 18 years? Okay. So it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible police work. That's just terrible evidence recovery and storage. I mean, I, it's awful. Well, you also have to remember back in the 1970s, there wasn't as much knowledge about how to store the biological evidence. Right. True. And so were you able to, in the end, develop any DNA off of this material? I did. I found uh, DNA from all three cases, and the DNA profile using this old technology was the same across all three cases. Okay. And so did that get you more excited about pursuing this? Absolutely. And so what kind of investigative steps did you take along the way there? Well, in in taking a look at this, it was obviously a series out in the East Bay in California. And looking into the case file, there was a name that I saw repeatedly, a detective, Larry Crompton, who at that point when I was looking at this case was a much older individual than I within the sheriff's office. I knew him, and he was a lieutenant over, I think, in uh, custody services at the time. Okay. And so did you contact him? Did you have any interactions with him from that point forward? I ended up calling Larry up and said, hey, I'm using this new, new DNA technology. You know, I think I might be able to help solve this case. And do you, Larry, have any prime suspects that you know I might be able to go out and see if I can get DNA from and see if he's the guy? And was he open to that? I mean, it's one of the things that I think we learn, especially as newbies in law enforcement, is there are certain procedures and protocols that some older detectives, investigators, and prosecutors don't like breached. So they don't want to be questioned if they had a case they couldn't solve or didn't solve. How did you find that with him? Larry was the opposite. He was very talkative. He told me, Paul, we had no prime suspects. We looked at thousands of people back in the day. He was part of the original group that was investigating this series. And he said, you know, my hunch back in the day was this guy may have gone down to Southern California. Really? Why did he have that hunch? Because there had been an attack down in Southern California that was very similar to the ones that were occurring in the East Bay. Okay, did this case by any chance, this mystery case, have any name or moniker attached to it? (laughs) So at that time, the acronym was E-A-R. For? For East Area Rapist. And so how many cases were attributed to this case? So 
So initially when I was looking at the case, I only could see 13 case files and that was cases out of the East Bay as well as some Central Valley cases. When I'm talking to Larry, he proceeded to tell me, oh, that also includes almost 30 attacks in Sacramento as well as other attacks throughout the Central Valley all the way down to San Jose. So East Area Rapist was a moniker that was given to this offender, although it wasn't really accurate, right? Well, it, it turns out it was accurate because it was given to the offender when he was attacking up in Sacramento before he moved out to the East Bay. And it's often confused. People refer to this individual as the East Bay Rapist. He actually was the East Area Rapist because he attacked all over the East Area of Sacramento before he moved out to the East Bay. Right. So when he was in Sacramento, did they have any kind of active investigation going on still? Well, at this point in time in 1994, there was no active investigation going on. Okay. And so was your dusting off these old files, was that something that reinvigorated this investigation? At least locally within Contra Costa County it did. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about what kind of investigation had been done, right? So in your typical rape case, there are lots of things to do. When you reviewed these case files and now you're talking about some 40-odd rapes, did you find commonalities? What sort of things were found at the scenes? What kind of description did the victims give? Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, in fact, this particular series had an offender that consistently was being described as being somewhere between 5'8", 5'10". Pretty confident he was a white male, 160, 180 pounds. However, he always wore a ski mask, so none of the victims ever saw his face. His MO was very distinct. He was breaking into houses in the middle of the night. He always had the ski mask on. He always had gloves on. If it was just a female in the house, he typically had a knife or similar type of weapon and would go and immediately hands on to the female laying in her bed, flip her on her stomach, and bind her hands behind her back, and bind her ankles, and then constantly issue threats. I'm going to kill you with clenched teeth. He's talking through clenched teeth. Why do you think that was? Did you have a theory on that? He was disguising his voice, and he was also trying to sound more menacing. This individual was a psychological sadist. He wanted to inflict terror in addition to physical harm. He wanted these victims to be scared. So it's important to note that sexual sadists are incredibly violent. 
but they actually derive their sexual pleasure from causing and witnessing the pain of their victims. There's a number of other very notorious ones. John Wayne Gacy, for example, he prolonged the torture. He was excited by that, not by what we would normally call sexual activity. And so this tells us something about this offender, what kind of person he is. And what we would hypothesize is that this kind of behavior would bleed into or leak out of his normal everyday life. So he's not someone who's just, everyone's going to describe as, wow, he's such a nice guy. I can't believe this happened. No, this would not be somebody that typically would be able to hide that. This is something that is part and parcel of his life. And normally, that would indicate a higher level of intelligence as well as a higher level of ability. In other words, he would be doing things in the real world that are more sophisticated than some other types of offender. So these are ways that, as we're looking at these cases, this is, these are ways that we start building a profile of this person. Well, so I think what's so interesting about this case and tragic is, you know, you find DNA, you find a profile, and it's early days, so you can't just go compare it with others. Or even if you can, if he's not in the system, you've got nothing to compare it to, right? It, on TV, it always looks so easy. They just, oh, here's the DNA profile. It goes up into a computer and comes back with a match. Well, there's only a match if the guy's in the system. So obviously, this guy wasn't in the system. You've got a man wearing gloves and a mask. What do you do? What steps do you take? I always think this is the most exciting and interesting part of investigations because they're hard. It's really hard work. So what, what happened next? So at this point, I'm now calling the agencies in Southern California that Larry Crompton had directed me to, asking, hey, you have some cases that are possibly related to the series I'm digging into. Is there any DNA evidence? And back in 1997, now three years later, ended up talking with a crime lab with the Orange County Sheriff's Office, and they had done some DNA work on three homicide cases down there, but their DNA was different than the DNA that I had in terms of the technology used. So the markers they looked at weren't the same markers I was looking at, so we could not do a direct comparison. So that was kind of very frustrating at the time, wasn't it? It was frustrating, because at that point, I was just doing due diligence and following a, a natural investigative path, and then at, we just kind of hit a brick wall, couldn't move any further to figure out, well, are those cases related or not? So you're still a, a young police officer, and you have now sort of unraveled the case that may include more than 40 different rapes, yet you hit a brick wall. How did that make you feel? What, what's going on in your brain at this time? Well, at this point, this was a case that I just initiated, and I realized that I had an avenue that I needed to complete, but I also had other cases I was working. So I literally just put the case kind of aside and went down other cases until the DNA technology improved. See, you can always tell when someone's been very recent law enforcement, they haven't been out a long time. You notice he didn't answer Jim's question. <laughs> Because it was, how did it make you feel? That's right. but I'm a trained prosecutor. My cross-examination skills tell me Paul hasn't answered, so this is how we do it. So, Paul, I think you didn't hear Jim's question. <laughs> she does it to other people, too. <laughs> so, what we want to know, right, we want to know, 
What does it make you feel when you have to set a case that's this important, this much damage, this violent a person aside because you're stuck? This case is always been a roller coaster. And so you think you're on a track. This is going to be exciting. And then when you get to a point where you can't follow that, it is a crashing kind of emotional letdown. And so for me, at this point, I just had to set it aside because I had many, many other things I was doing. So you're let down. You start working on other cases. When did this case rear its ugly head again? Back in 2001. And how did that happen? And that was when there was a standardization of DNA technologies across the nation. And now the DNA was repeated on the evidence from Contra Costa County. And I proceeded to have the analyst that did that work call up the Orange County Crime Lab. So when you say DNA was repeated, can you explain that? So I had initially done DNA work back in 1997 using this old technology. I then promoted up to a lieutenant level position by 2001 and assigned the work, the case, to a DNA analyst who took my original DNA extracts from the East Area Rapist attacks and proceeded to do this new STR technology and generated the profile in the technology that still exists today. It's been, it's that robust. Now it was, okay, four years ago I called Orange County that brick wall, let's see if we can figure out if that's a true dead end or if there's something else going on. So basically this new STR DNA technology expanded the scope of what they could develop out of a genetic sample. Yes. So It's basically like copying it, right? You have to make the sample bigger in order for it to be read, and so it gets multiplied. That's what the repeating part of the STR means. It gets repeated so that then it can be examined and measured scientifically. Right. So now you can compare older samples with newer samples, and everything should be consistent. So the case is solved. No. (laughs) But at this point, the DNA analyst called up the other DNA analyst. So you have Contra Costa County reaching out to Orange County, and they are each looking at DNA profiles while talking on the phone, and were able to read the profile to each other. And then this is when we connected the East Area Rapist series up in Northern California to what was known as the original Night Stalker series down in Southern California. All right, and this is a incredibly unusual set of circumstances where, yes, it's one state, but it's how many hours away? So that's driving time, seven to eight hours. Right, and so California's kind of a big state, not as big as Texas. Yeah, because once I had to drive across Texas, wow. I thought it was going to take me a couple hours. I was wrong. But in California, those are two very different areas. Northern California around Sacramento and San Francisco and the Bay Area versus Southern California like L.A. and San Diego. Totally different worlds. Yes. But the crime stopped up north, didn't they? They did. And they started and they were tied together through DNA to the south. That's right. Okay, so everybody thought what about the offender? At this point, you know, we thought this offender had obviously escalated. He was committing these sexual assaults up north. He he disappears from Northern California in July of 79, 
and he showed up down in Santa Barbara in October of 79, and in that particular case, when he separated the male and female in that house, he is pacing back and forth and saying, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him this time, I'm gonna kill him. So at this point, the case goes sideways because the victims hear that and they run out or hop out because the male is bound and he has to bail. Two months later, he commits his first double homicide. Right. So in all appearances, it looks like he has moved from Northern California to Southern California. It looks like he's relocated. He stopped raping up north. Why? Was there some incident where he was almost caught? Was there some watershed moment why he decided to stop doing that? Was it announced, for example, that people were looking at the case again? No, this in 1979, when he moved down south, he just disappeared. We had, there was nothing that we can attribute to why he moved down to Southern California. So this is one of the things in profiling that can be a difficult situation. We don't know. There's no physical or public information that tells us why somebody would be successfully getting away with doing all these rapes, all these crimes. Nobody could identify him. Nobody even came close to figuring out who he was, yet he moved and started operating seven hours away by car. That's a major change in behavior. So probably something happened in his life that made him make that decision, something that doesn't have any outward manifestation. Well, and the other thing that's really significant about this is it tells you how hard it is to solve cases when offenders move jurisdictions. For example, Georgia, there are 197 counties. There are, I think, like 60-some district attorney's offices and hundreds of police departments. So if you literally go from the city limits of Atlanta and jump over into DeKalb County, and go back and forth between those two jurisdictions, there's no guarantee that DeKalb County and Atlanta Police Department are gonna talk about the case. So that's the other thing that's really a tribute to law enforcement in this case, is that they were able to make that connection when someone had obviously jumped jurisdictions. Right, and we're gonna talk about that Southern California spree when we come back. And we wanna thank you for coming, Paul, and we will be talking to you shortly about everything that happened in Southern California on this case. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. And thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Till next time. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless. But the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. 
but there's more work to do. And with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.